this episode, my guest is Neil Mercer, Emeritus Professor of Education at Cambridge University, Director of Oracy Cambridge, and a leading expert in the role of spoken language in the classroom. Our topic today is two-pronged. We will be talking about the evidence for and practical strategies to implement both teacher and pupil talk. Neil, hello. Hello. Uh, should we start by giving you giving a brief overview of your interest in this area and perhaps a little about the Thinking Together project? Yeah, okay. Um, well, I, my background is I'm a psychologist mm -hmm. uh, initially, and still am really, um, and my PhD was on spontaneous speech. Uh, I got interested in that really partly through moving around a little bit as a child and realising how much the way people talk varied when you moved around. Mm. And, uh, and that got me interested in the, the, whole, the whole nature of talk. Uh, and I also realised, uh, being in school, that there were certain ways you could talk in school and some ways that you weren't meant to talk in school. Okay, and yeah. so my whole interest in that sort of began, I think, partly through my own experience. And then when I'd done my PhD on, which was a sort of laboratory kind of psychology uh, study, I realised I really wanted to do something that impacted more on the real world and not, not really go on being a sort of lab-bound psychologist. Mm. And at that point, there was a lot of research coming out. Um, people like Basil Bernstein on the relationship between social background and talk, mm. uh, Jerome Bruner, all this stuff about cognitive development and talk. And I thought, that's it. You know, School was the place where I got interested in this stuff. I should go back in and start seeing how talk works there. Mm. And so that's really what I've mainly concentrated on ever since. By uh, talk you mean um, not just accent or vocabulary but a mixture of all those elements? Yeah I mean I, yeah I actually mean um, spoken language as a, as, a, as, a, as a distinctively human tool for for communicating and creating understanding and mm. and uh, uh, and so I mean the whole of its of its of its range of possibilities. Uh, my interest came through those kind of aspects but but I, I became more interested in for example the relationship between the children's experience of language and use of language and the development of their thinking of the you know their reasoning mm. and, and that's, that's where the the thinking together project which i began with rupert wegeriff and lynn dawes that's really where that came from because the the, the research that was around um from a long time ago, people like Vygotsky in Russia, um, and more recently, people like Bruner at that time, suggested that there was a closer relationship between between language and thinking than perhaps people had thought. Mm. And so we really wanted to see whether if, really, um, if you got children skilled at thinking collectively together and reasoning together, mm. Uh, in reasoned discussions, did that impact on how they reasoned alone? Okay. Um, because Vygotsky, uh, his his kind of hypothesis was that that you you first of all th think you know as a child you you're drawn into dialogues and you end up thinking with other people by making sense of what they're saying and then making sense of what you're saying, mm. and that you can internalize that. That's interesting. And yeah. and the idea being that as a, an educated person, you kind of have a reasoned discussion in your own head, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that was his idea. Well, he, he never was able to, to show uh, enough evidence while he was alive because he died fairly young and Stalin 
uh, stamped pretty heavily on that kind of psychology. He preferred Pavlov and his dogs, you know. Yeah. So um, it, le it was left to people a lot later, a lot later, um, to, um, to actually do, like us, to do research to show whether he was right or not. And that's what we did through the Thinking Together project initially. And when we think, uh, in terms of the, th the thinking and using language th to think, mm. does that mean that uh, our think if our vocabulary is limited or our language is limited or our spoken la language at least is limited, that we're less, uh, we think less well? I think I think there's a lot of evidence now to show that young children's early language experience has a big effect on their academic attainment and by implication that is having some effects on how they are processing knowledge and how they're actually using as I say language as this tool for thinking on your own as well as collectively and I think that is one of the the things that that is I mean Bernstein was suggesting that children's social background could affect their chances through the way the opportunities they had to develop language skills and I think we have to admit although it was very controversial at the time that in some ways he was right and and it's not that um, people are necessarily not having any experience at all it's very rare that they would have any ex very little language experience it's whether they're having the range of ways of losing language that underpin these mm. different ways of thinking so it's not just about articulation it's actually mm. You know, it's not that they have the 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 ability to think and just have uh, there's something going wrong in the 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 articulation of that. It's actually a fundamental problem that they can't think as broadly or as expansively. Yeah, well, they haven't got the model, if you like, for reasoning mm. that that language can give them. If if they've not encountered a lot of reasoned discussions at home or outside school, then then you can't expect them to have in their repertoire that sort of. That, that genre, if you like, that kind of way of talking, which is reason discussion. Mm. And therefore, that, if that's the sort of external model for the internal version of reasoning, it's not surprising if they haven't developed it as quickly or as, or as easily. Mm. And that's why I, I always say to teachers, I mean, especially primary teachers, that, that, that they're the only second chance for some children mm. to have that rich language experience they might not get it anywhere else. Yeah. So if they're not getting it in school, they're not getting it, you know. Which brings us neatly, I guess, to the, to the first area of our topic, which is like teacher talk. Mm. And as you've just expressed, you know, perhaps not just teaching vocabulary and teaching knowledge, if, if you want to, if you term it out, or facts or knowledge, is not possibly enough. But modelling teacher talk, modelling that resource, um, reasoning process is just as important. It is. I, I mean, I think I think... With teachers, I mean, talk is the main tool of their trade. Mm. Uh, it's it's something that that's yours as well, in so, you know, in this yeah. situation, and many other people like lawyers and so on. But uh, it is, and and it's a skilled thing to use it effectively to help children develop. And uh, I think the development of of teachers' language skills, spoken language skills, and children's language skills are kind of two sides of the same coin. They're not the same thing. Mm. And I think, I think it is worth separating that. I think there can be a, a tendency for people, you know, there's a lot of, as we, we'll probably talk in a minute about oracy education, but mm. that's not the same thing as, 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 as teachers using talk to teach anything. It's, mm. it's, it, and, and I think what we know now is that the ways teachers use talk in the classroom make a difference to the quality of the learning of, of the students. I mean, um, 
there's sometimes a contrast made, isn't there, between advocates of a traditional kind of education uh, and and a progressive education, with the with the implication that traditional education is where the teachers um, do nearly all the talking and very carefully and and, and systematically and clearly instruct students in what they ought to know and inform them. On the other hand, the, the progressive kind of model is where the, the teacher hears more what the students say, they're encouraged to share their ideas, express the misunderstandings, and the teacher is meant to stay out the way and hang back. What, I, what, what drives me mad is when I see these posed as choice, as a choice, mm. you know, because they're not. You know, all the evidence suggests that children, to learn well, need authoritative presentations by experts, mm. good, well-qualified, trained teachers who can explain things in a way that the ordinary person might not so well. There's no way around it. They've got to know that, um, that those certain things, and those, that, that's the job of the teacher. However, if you want the students to develop the ability to work with that knowledge, to reason with it, to practice it, um, and, to, and to be able to make it their own, then there's got to be a balance. Yeah. And that's what, that's what I'm, I'm really arguing for. You want the balance between opportunities for sitting and listening and opportunities for, for dialogue in which the, the teacher hears what the students haven't yet understood. You know, we did some research in Singapore and the teachers were, uh, teacher was able to overhear the students uh, you know, uh, revising together for physics. And, um, and, and so they were given the opportunity to just talk amongst themselves like that. And when she heard it, um, she said, God, that's wonderful in one way, because I now realise that although I've taught forces for four weeks, half of these guys don't, still don't get it. Yeah. But I wouldn't have known that otherwise if yeah. I hadn't heard them just talking about it. Then the next lesson, she said, right, in this lesson, shut up, because I know what you don't know now, and the exams are in four weeks. Yeah. And she just told them clearly what they need to know. Now, that was strategic balance. And that's what I think all the evidence suggests is what, what's really needed. And so some of those traditional teachers now, well, or even teachers who would not consider themselves traditional teachers, would say rather than listening to those students, you just give them a test, you know, a little Q&A or a little multiple choice test to get the same sort of information. I, do, I don't think you do. Mm. I mean, all I can say is from, from the evidence I've seen and from the recordings I've heard, there's a difference between your child getting something wrong and a child uh, being able to explain what they do and don't understand. And also, it's not just that. You want, I mean, Jay Lemke, who's a famous American science educator, he said, science education should make students fluent speakers of science. Mm. And he's right. They shouldn't just be fluent. They shouldn't just be receptacles of scientific knowledge. Mm. They should be speakers of it, meaning they can operate it and speak it. And that is part of the skill. And, and they're never going to, you're not going to learn French if all you do is listen. Yeah. Um, and, and it's the same. So I, I think it's a case of balancing that and giving the students the opportunity to get into the discourses of subjects um, so, and make them their own and the teachers to provide feedback on that. And when the opportunity is right, the teacher can much more clearly see what still needs to be taught. Otherwise, you, you're guessing. And from t tests, I'm not saying they're not useful, but they'll only give you a certain limited kind of information and they won't give the students that chance to construct the knowledge themselves. I, I think, you know, if you want the best results, 
in, in almost any level, you know, both in terms of student satisfaction or as well as their progress and their exam results, I think, you, you know, the balance is what we should be striving for, really. And does the research suggest what that balance looks like, you know, percentage-wise, in a particular, let's say, an hour lesson, how much teacher talk or non-teacher talk there should be? I don't think it does in any very clear, simple way. I mean, what what, what you, you you might know, there's a sort of rule called the seventy percent rule, which shows that most of the time in most lessons, talks going at least seventy percent of the time there's somebody talking, and seventy percent of that, that talk's likely to be the teacher. And I, I think crude kind of proportions aren't really important because if if the other thirty percent is the teacher organising something where the students work together on problems without the teacher being in there and you know and they can pra they can try and use that knowledge and the teachers listening and providing feedback and then I think it's what happens in that in those lessons I mean we do know a lot, a lot more now about what what kinds of ways of using talk matter um, and, and it's worth pointing out there aren't any large-scale systematic studies at all that show that traditional a, a straight monologic if you like traditional approach to teaching is works hmm. I mean there aren't any you know um, likewise there aren't any studies that show a highly progressive you know laissez-faire you know let the children discover for themselves approach works either yeah. what we do have now just in the last couple of years we've had lots of small relatively small-scale studies that we've done and done all over the world that have shown that cert suggested that certain ways of teachers interacting with students was helpful for their learning um, but what we've had in the last year really is is two of the fir the first large scale studies one done by us at cambridge um an esrc study uh, with your um with 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 your six students and one done at york um with, with using the education education endowment foundation funds um to look at year fives and uh, in both cases you've got in our case we just observed what uh, 80 roughly 72 in the end primary teachers we didn't tell them to teach in a different way we just said let's see what's happening and can we correlate the variation that we yeah. see with outcomes you know like sats and attitudes things like that uh, and what we found was you could that that teachers who who enabled who, who in, it enabled children to participate when it was an appropriate time in the class so that when it was a some sort of classroom discussion they got high levels of participation amongst their students and if they then got them to elaborate their ideas mm. you know say a bit more about that say a bit more and also to question things well I, I you know if you don't understand say what you know what it is if they did those three things they got better results in their sats in literacy and in maths right yeah so you know we know that um we also know from our study that if the, the teachers had got well-organized group work, meaning when we saw it, we, you know, on the basis, it's a whole other related topic, yeah. but when our, our, we as observers thought, now that's effectively done group work, they also got better results. And, and there was reasoned discussion in those, in those groups. So we know that from that study. The York EF study, they, they essentially trained about 80 teachers to teach in a more what they call the dialogic way, mm. um, meaning that they systematically involve children in 
in question and uh, you know answer sessions with open questions mm -hmm. where they encourage the children to take longer turns in replying where they organized group work um, and where they got the children to reason about ideas not just uh, not 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 just give uh, factual answers in response to a teacher's question and they did that for a, a longer than a term and uh, they also took measures and they found likewise that they got better results the teachers who who used the strategies that they said they trained them in in other words the ones that the teachers who were trained mm. got better results uh, in math science and and literacy um, the, the way they put it um, is that the children made two months more progress when the t by when they were taught tr uh, when they were taught by the trained teachers than by a compar comparable uh, control group of teachers who went about life in the normal way mm. so you know th those are the sort of things I think that, that that encourage me to think we do know enough to not feel we're misleading anybody if we say you should strive for this balance between authoritative presentation and genuine dialogue and when you're in the dialogue think about doing these specific things get children to elaborate their ideas make sure it's not just the usual suspects who answer your questions but try and get participation widely get them to discuss each other's ideas mm. if you can hang back you know it's a hard thing to do but somebody says something rather than say no that's not right or yeah perfect safe what well john said that what what do you think is, mm. is you agree and that way the teacher will not only learn more about what they all think but the students will as well I mean, you must know yourself. You you often don't really know whether you understand something till you have to explain it to somebody else. It's the drafting process of writing a feature, I think. You know, you go through three or four, and the first draft is always just trying to work out what actually you're trying to say, and the second one is refining that, and you refine it with each draft essentially. Yeah. And it's, do we know that what a teacher can do when they're taught in the in the talking stage of what yeah. they're doing? Do we know? Are we pretty sure about what works there? I mean, the sort of you know, what works in a narrative sense, what works in sort of pitch, tone, uh, in terms of the content of what they're saying as well. Yeah, I, th I think with pitch and tone and so on, you, you've got some more general rules which apply in, in, a, very, in a sort of rather generalised sense to, to, to presentational talk in any way, any mm. situation. And the clarity of, of, of enunciation and things like that, and speed, you know, not to talk too fast and yeah. things like that. Uh, I think we know those things. Um, I think in terms of content, what, what we know is that the best presentations are those which, uh, which take account of the level of understanding of your audience, mm. but move them on just a little bit. Um, and, and, and also, I mean, it's a very hard thing to, 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 to say you should do, but um, it, it's that if you can be inspirational in the sense of getting people interested, uh, one of my colleagues, I used to work at the Open University, and he, he did some research on students at summer schools. And uh, because people saying, oh, it's pointless doing, giving them lectures, because lectures, you know, nobody learns from lectures. And, and he, 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 he interviewed some students who'd been listening to Stuart Hall, who was a very famous sociologist. And um, as they came out, and he said, um, uh, w what did you get from this? said, well, I actually think sociology is the best thing ever <laughs> and I just can't wait to get started and and what 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 he got from that was it, it was as much the enthusiasm that was that was conveyed as the content in in a literal sense so that was there as well mm. so I I think uh, from a teacher's point of view there are lots of a fairly straightforward rhetorical and uh, you know if you like oratory kind of skills that 
teachers can be taught to use. But I think a lot of it too is is having this a, a, a knowledge of what level you're you're actually working in. And I, I think secondary teachers it's harder because they're only seeing you know this lot every Tuesday at three yeah. o'clock. With a primary teacher, you've got the same kids all year. You you come to know who who is where. I think. So I think it's not an easy thing to achieve, but I think it's possible. And I think like most of these things, the the important thing is teachers are self-aware about their use of talk mm. and that they that they don't take it for granted that that it's just going to happen, you know, naturally. I mean, it's a skill. It's something you learn to do. And and I think I mean at Cambridge we certainly teach the, the you know the trainee teachers or people on the PGC these, about these kind of things and how to do it. I, I'm not really sure whether that happens everywhere, and especially on, in school-based training, but, but it's absolutely crucial because, as I say, it's the, the main tool of their trade. And do you think um, a teacher of any personality can do it? I mean, is there room in, the, in, in those presentation skills? You know, enunciation is, is probably ubiquitous, but in terms yeah. of like passion, people show passion in different ways yeah. and enthusiasm in different mm. ways. Is there one type of personality who's more suited to it, or is this something every teacher can sort of create a bespoke version of it for themselves? Yeah. I, I think, I, I mean, it's moving over now into into the sort of oracy education in a way, because it's mm. the same sort of question. I, I think, I think yes, I, I think anybody can learn these skills in a way that will make them better at it. Mm. There will still be some people who are, like as in anything, who have a talent if you like or mm. a kind of, but but no I'm, I'm i'm convinced that people can learn and i don't think um i don't think you need to be uh, an extrovert you know to be able to do that i mean some of the people i know are the best teachers are very introverted but they can teach a whole class marvelously yeah. because they're, they're doing a job it's not quite the same as being at a party you know uh, and and it's a different set of skills in a way anyway so I, I I don't think that's a handicap. I'm sure teaching must suit some some aspects of teaching must suit different personalities more than others. But I'm I'm convinced that anybody can learn skills of of using spoken language that will make them better at it. Yeah. And do you think that you know we talked about proportion of teacher talk and and, and you know um, class class participation. Do you think that that proportion will shift depending on the type of personality or type of teacher you are, or will it shift? perhaps by how good at the direct talk you are? I'm not sure that's an easy question to answer. I, I, think, I think the question the teacher's got to ask is what are the needs of the students? Mm -hmm. And I think the proportion of instructive talk, if you like, uh, as, as opposed to dialogue where, where, where the students are taking a more active role, I think that ought to be really determined by what you're trying to achieve rather than by your personality as a teacher. I, I'm sure teachers will achieve that balance, can achieve that balance in rather different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, and that some people might be more gripping to just hear, uh, you know, for a while. But but I think it's really more a case of what are you trying to do and how and what, what kind of outcomes are you trying to achieve? And I don't think you can achieve all the right outcomes in education with only using one or the other approach of a sort of just, you know, free dialogue or, or, or monologue presentation however clear I guess we're getting as you say into the second part which is mm. the children's talk and I guess intervening earlier and in, you know so those teacher trainees are perhaps already have the proper oracy training by that stage I mean both for teachers and students I guess the problem is if you have a shy student who 
who is reluctant mm. to talk. I mean, I've just been editing a piece actually on, on this uh, by a teacher who said, forcing that child to speak is the wrong approach. You need to, it's a gentle introduction to, to oracy, to, to, to speaking up in front of people, which is intimidating, however old you are, I guess. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that's very true. I mean, some people are more naturally willing to speak. But I mean, the, the thing about oracy, we're moving on to that now. Mm. I mean, the range of oracy skills is quite broad. And there is a tendency, there's been a, I mean, there's a lot more interest in oracy and oracy education in the last two or three years. Yes. I mean, the word wasn't being used five years ago. I mean, it'd been used in the late 80s with the or National Oracy Project, then it kind of went. Yeah. It's come back in, partly because it's a very convenient way to make spoken language have some sort of parity with numeracy and literacy, which mm. is why it was invented. But but I think um, the thing to remember is that that it, it, there is a, has been a tendency pr in, in the press a bit to think of oracy as meaning speech making or presentational talk or taking part in debates. Like I say, debating is the yeah, big one. It's the it? obvious yeah. thing. But it's not, we don't really mean that. We mean the full range of spoken language skills, which would include doing things like what we're doing now. Mm. It would include uh, working in a group, uh, in a team to get something done. It would include helping somebody else learn something. It would include listening sensitively to someone uh, about something so that you can take account of what they're saying and help them. Um, and, and so you, people will vary in their profiles. I mean, you'll find some kids who come into year seven in a secondary school, say, and they have no worries about standing up and talking. Mm. But put them in a group and they never listen to anybody. <laughs> you know, while you get somebody else who's brilliant in a group, will be checking what everybody thinks, sums up nicely what everybody's done, checks and all this kind of stuff, uh, gives reasons, asks for them and so on, uh, and yet asks them to say what happened at the end and they're tongue-tied. Yeah. And, and that's, that's not necessary. You don't have to be, as I say, an extrovert to be uh, a good public speaker and you don't have to be an introvert to be a good listener you know, or, or, or a quiet receptive person. I, I think, I mean you can see this, I mean I think one of the, the reasons, one of the things that's come up with oracy education is, is, is it a matter of, it shouldn't be a matter of privilege or social advantage. I mean we all know that people who have been to the most elite public schools seem to have no problem in interacting and, and speaking and so on uh, in public. Uh, that might be some coincidence with why the, a lot of them run in the country, uh, in Parliament and so on. Um, but that, it's not an accident because those schools actually do effectively train, train yeah. them in oracy. They are obviously educators and they, they get that. It's just been in the, the state sector where oracy has been sort of subdued in favour of literacy and numeracy and not seen as important. I mean, we, I d did some, some research with, with, with Clara Perez at Cambridge where we looked at state school students coming to Cambridge and those from the elite public schools. And the difference when they arrive is ridiculous. I mean, you know, the state school student from Hull will come and say, well, I was the first person from Hull ever to come here and I was top guy in the school and stuff, went in this first joint supervision session and the teacher said, well, just tell me what I think of that book. And I was completely tongue-tied. Mm. He said, and this, this fellow next to me from Star or somewhere, he talked for 20 minutes and the teacher said, that's great. And I knew he hadn't read more than me, but I had never had to do that. And he, yeah. he said, oh, it's really like being in the sixth form, this, isn't it? Because so I think what you actually got is, is opportunities for some students more than others 
to learn those skills, regardless of their personalities. Being comfortable with it. Being comfortable yeah. with it and just treating it as something that you can do mm. and you learn to do. And, and what we're really arguing for in myself and other people who are pushing for oracy education is for oracy to be taught. I mean, there, there is a slight tendency for people to think, some people to think we're saying children should be allowed to chat in class. That isn't it. Mm. It's a complete misconception. What we're saying is children should be taught oracy like they're taught literacy yeah, yeah. Or, or like they're taught maths or music. With a bit of direct teaching. With oh, a bit yeah. Of, yeah. Uh, but yeah, imagine it's the same as you know, learning a musical instrument. Mm. You, you, you've got to learn the skills before you can. You can't be a jazz pianist straight away. You've got mm. to learn the scales. You know, at first it might be a bit clunky, but you get looser and you get better at it. And that's through a mixture of. Uh, you know, uh, uh, of being told how, allowed to develop those skills, getting feedback and practice, you know. And unless we create that space, you won't get people doing it. And and so I, th I, th I think that's, you know, that what we're really saying, it ought to be explicitly taught in the way that other things are. It's not a case of letting more chat happen. Mm. That some people might I mean, that's a good idea, perhaps it is, but that's not what we're arguing for. And I guess that's why some people fear oracies, because they see it as a lack of giving over control yeah. of your classroom. Yeah, I mean, I talk, as I, I talk to teachers a lot. I would say I was interviewing teachers in Camden this morning who have set up an oracy hub uh, and work in secondary and primary schools. Mm. And, uh, and, and, and it's marvellous what they're doing, and they're seeing the effects of, of this. Um, and, and, and it's a struggle in some ways because they know they have to fit it in with everything else yeah. that they're expected to do. But I know talking to teachers like that elsewhere, and in Bradford and Leeds, we were up there recently, they've done a lot of really good work there. And, and you'll get some, some, some young teachers, for example, saying, oh, it's great coming here where they want me to do this. In my last school, I tried to get some sort of oracy work going in the classroom. Uh, and, uh, and, and the head came in and said, this is a noisy classroom. Yeah. Yeah, you know. And... Um, uh, and, and in fact, when I was going through my um, tidying up recently, I've, I've got it there. Um, I found from 1999 a TS article, All right. which is about our stuff. And they've got a lovely cartoon there. And it says, shows his teacher and it says, stop not talking at the back. Which <laughs> <laughs> is perfect. Yeah. yeah, it is. And it's not a case of just letting it happen. It's a case of systematic help in developing these skills and it's empowering students it's preparing them for work um, and for democracy and and for, for life in general and you know employers commonly say they want more of these communication skills from graduates they want people who are good with customers listen to customers listening managers effective present presenters to meetings or whatever um, people who can work in teams i mean google and all these kind of places set up these things and mm. give them a whole day and and it can be squandered if the people don't know how to work in a team and and not everybody does yeah i mean you it's know, hard isn't it? it's yeah. hard and and even people who even people who should know don't i mean i've sat in some staff meetings in universities where I, you know people weren't work doing it the right way yeah. um, what you can do is learn the skills of how to make a team effective through using talk because it's how you do it and how you can as we we put it you, you, you don't just want people to interact in a group you want them to interthink mm. because that's how that's how humans solve problems that's why for better or worse we're the dominant species in the world <laughs> because we're the only ones who can 
use spoken language to create a sort of mega brain and solve problems or, or not. But I mean, we've got the capacity and that's why we where we are. I mean, that's why we're sitting in a built environment like this, you know, that, because there's teams of people have, have cracked how to do it. And have done it a hive mind, if you like. Exactly, exactly, that's right. And I guess if we want teachers to do this more, the problem is that they're, what they're assessed on at the moment is content. Yes. And so all their time is like, I, I haven't got time for that because I just want to get this content mm. done. But then if you look at something like the French oral exam, suddenly RSC's at the fore there. That's right. Um, do you think it's, you know, do you think teachers need to be persuaded or schools more like? Because I, yeah. I imagine a lot of teachers are in, want to do this but don't feel they can. Do you need to assess some sort of assessment of RSC? I think so. I mean, I've come around to this, uh, me and my colleagues, not just me, but we sort of came around to it reluctantly in some ways because it... The minute you assess something, it constrains it, doesn't yeah. it? I mean, reading comprehension, what you're really assessing, you know. Yeah. You, you know, you're not necessarily assessing the, you know, all, all this subtlety of what you get from reading something. But I think, unfortunately, in the education system, unless something's assessed, it's not taken seriously. Yeah. And so I think that's one reason why RSE does need to be assessed. And I think it's a great shame at GCSE that the English oral was 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 lo you know was lost in status, mm. because I think that means, unfortunately, uh, and understandably, teachers will feel they shouldn't devote as much time to it. So I I think it does. And I, and and we've created um, an RSE framework. We work with uh, School Twenty One on a project funded by the Educational Endowment, Education Endowment Foundation, which, in which we developed this framework and an assessment scheme. Um, and so I don't think it's impossible. I mean, that was aimed at year seven because that's all we, we were aiming to do in the limited time, mm. relatively limited time we had. But it's quite possible and, and nobody's, you know, I, nobody's disliked our scheme <laughs> in any serious way. Um, and I think it helps sort of I think if you can just have some sort of frame that makes this slippery stuff, spoken language, a bit more seeable, mm. a bit more visible, so you can sort of see the wood for the trees and you can see that it has, there's a linguistic element to it, the vocabulary and the, the grammar aspect, but there's also a cognitive one, like the, what are you using, you know, what are the, how well are the arguments being presented and so on. And there's a the social and emotional one. I mean, I won't convince you probably of anything if I sat and shouted at you, yeah. you know. Um, there's, there's all these sort of things. Would you take each of those and teach them explicitly, uh, discreetly, sorry? Or would, is, is, are all those skills, if you, if you want to call them skills, or, or knowledge of how to do this, bundled into a, like, an activity or, or an experience? Yeah, I, I think it's both. You know, I think the framework where you show that these things are there like there's a physical aspect, which is like things you mentioned earlier, like tonality of voice and mm. clarity. Of, um, I, I, I think it helps everyone if you can see those things. I don't think you need to then, you can do something to, to, with some people to, to, to improve their clarity of, of pronunciation and presentation in that physical level. That might be just what they need. Mm. But I, I think it's almost like once you've seen these elements, you're more aware yourself and in any activity, some will be more important than others. I mean, if you were giving a talk to, you know, uh, 200 people somewhere, your, your clarity of, of enunciation, um, your body language, uh, things like that, would be absolutely crucial. So that, that aspect of this frame would come to the fore. Mm. In group work, it's not so important that you're speaking so clearly, because I'm only sitting next to you, yeah. and body language is almost irrelevant. Yeah. But, but in that, the listening, which is not important in a big presentation, 
except perhaps at the end for the questions. But you know, in in the group work, the listening skills that that aspect of the social and emotional aspect is crucial. So it, it's like the different things operate in different situations, and you can sort of see a cluster of these sort of skills will operate in different ways. And once people see that, I think it starts to make sense. And what you'd hope, like with any of these things, is once you've got this kind of level, a meta kind of level of understanding, you're a bit more in control of your own learning and your own development then because you can sort of see what you're striving for. I can see the importance of modelling that comes back then. It's crucial. So if the teacher's modelling good listening, yeah. good oracy, yeah. um, and then perhaps some of the more able students in oracy, not in attainment terms, but if, if you've got really good, confident speakers mm. and you, you know they're being pinpointed and saying, do you know, that was a really good way of articulating that yes. or I can see you've really listened. You're, yeah, yeah. you're constantly modelling those things without ha necessarily having to discreetly or explicitly teach it. That's true, exactly. And what I've seen, you know, um, works very well in like School 21 in East London and in schools in Bradford and so on, um, is you can get the students to be their own self-help as well. I mean, if we are all sitting in a group and we've all got to give a five-minute talk on something, I'm not going to be that nasty about yours when I know that you, you're going to tell me what you think of mine in five minutes. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be as helpful as possible. Yeah. And, and that way they can, they can learn both from each other and yet also support each other in the development, with the teacher being the arbiter there and, and, and running the thing. But I, th I think, there are, I mean, we know how to teach oracy now. It's not like we don't know, mm. um, not just in schools. I mean, we're doing a conference uh, in a couple of weeks uh, oracy in business mm. uh, in London uh, because in in all walks of life people want people who've developed these skills and some people need to put more work work into some of them than others mm. and we know how to do it so I I think the classroom practice given the space and the opportunity I don't think there's a, a problem do you think that I've, I've been to a lot of schools recently and for example they'll, they'll want every hand up for a question yeah They'll say, you know, it's a, it's a cold calling, it's a Douglamov um, technique, for example, where he, he might just pick on someone and say, okay, you, you tell me. Is that sort of a forced oracy or forced articulation, public oracy, is that, is that advisable? Or, and is it advisable, more, more advisable, sorry, if you have done all the back, you know, if you're confident yeah. that that student knows how to do that? Yeah, I think it is. I, I think with any of these things, they're not likely to happen just overnight. I mean, if you walked into a classroom anywhere and you just said, right, uh, uh, I want you to stand up now and tell me what you thought, you know, you could be putting that child in a horrible spot and mm. they might die of shame and, and, and embarrassment. But if it's something you've worked up to over a term or longer where people feel secure and they feel in that situation that's what's expected, in this classroom that's what we do, mm. then it becomes attainable for everyone, I think. I, th I think it's a lot to be done with, with w what they think the teacher expects. And uh, if they know that if they happen to expound their idea, the teacher isn't going to say, rubbish, sit down yeah. um, in this classroom. But, well, I'm, okay, we've got one idea there. Let's float that one. Let's hear another one yeah. and then resolve it. Then they're not going to be so worried about doing it. And this is what, you know, this is what the teachers I was interviewing this morning were saying. They're saying we're going to interview students as well there, but... They're saying the students say, "Oh, yeah, I can s see, you know, what why this is helping me. Uh, I, I wouldn't have dared do this before, mm. uh, and and I, I'm glad I can do it now. And I think once they can see that, they can 
they can benefit from it. I mean, like, we've, we, it's been observed that some of the people, for example, in group work, some of the, the, the children who are least keen on group work initially are high-achieving girls. Okay. Yeah. And, and they often, they, they say things like, well, I, d I don't really see what I'm getting from this because I think I understand it better than anybody else. And the boys all tore over me anyway. Yeah. And, um, and I don't think there's much, much point. But then when they've got involved in good quality group work for a while, they will come out and say things like, oh, I got, actually, I got lots from that because mm. I did think I understood it. But when I had to explain it to these guys and they asked me some questions about it, it made me wonder... And I got a much clearer idea of myself in my head. Mm. So that, that you know, the high achievers win as well as the the ones who were being helped by the high achievers. And I I think the proof of it is 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 when you get that kind of feedback from the teachers and students that it's working. Do you think? Um, I guess the final question is: Do you think this is an intervention or, or, or a curriculum that needs to be taught as early as possible? Is this something that, if you get it right at primary, when teenagers get a bit awkward, yeah, in in secondary, yeah. they're already comfortable? I think that's true. Yeah, I think there's a couple. I mean, one is yes, you're right. Primary children are more well; they're less they're less easily embarrassed, aren't mm. they? Yeah, and and I think if you can get those skills and that kind of ex expectation set in primary years. We, we've done this kind of interventional stuff with, with year ones and we're year twos. Mm. And, and, and it's great, you know, you, uh, we've got videos of showing the difference over a term or so. Uh, and you're right, uh, I think if you've got those things established in primary school, it would be much easier for secondary school teachers to build on it, mm. definitely. And I, I, th I think those are the sorts of... Um, continuity issues which for example this Camden Oracy Hub is trying to grasp by bringing secondary and primary teachers together so you can sort of make sure there's some continuity involved and it doesn't all get lost or have to start again you know. So the big message to teachers then really is you know model good good talk. It is. Get good balance. That's right. And don't be afraid to ex you know really explicitly teach oracy in your classrooms whatever at the age group you're exactly teaching. that's right yeah definitely thank you very much neil thank you cheers